Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoot. And I'm Coach John Shoot. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Good day to everyone, and welcome back to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Matt Bush, the news director of Blue Ridge Public Radio, and I help the Mount Shoops produce Going Deep. And today, we're just going to catch up on some of the stories that have been happening in the sports world. Obviously, there's so many things going on in the world right now, news-wise. And as it always is, the sports world sort of mirroring what's going on in the larger society. And we're going to take a, a look at a couple of those issues today. But, John and Marsha, hello. Hello, Matt. It's hey, so Matt. nice to get to sit down with you again we haven't done this in a while it certainly has uh, been quite a long time so thank you just wanted to check in and say hi our listeners i'm sure would love to know how things are with you too as we head into the fall we're doing pretty well i i know some of our listeners know john's had some health challenges and we've we're just kind of in a little bit of a equilibrium place right now and we're going to enjoy that while we can i have the privilege of uh being a world history teacher here at AC Reynolds High School, and we're, well, we're just winding up our second week of uh, school, and I'm really enjoying the students I get to hang out with every day. Well, that's very great, and obviously nothing going on in world history right now, John, so I'm sure there are no current <laughs> events, no current events uh, segments going on uh, in your teaching, as I know you have done before, and you've, I've even used that's this right. when talking to uh, other public radio listeners, and uh, that... Uh, when you have done current events in your classrooms and uh, let them use let them use different uh, news sources, the one they seem to like the best is NPR. Up, up first, <laughs> my, my goal is for my goal is for all of our uh, ninth grade world history students to get in their parents' car and turn to eighty eight point one, and you'd be surprised. Many of them do it and tell me. They've listened to a morning edition on their way into school. It, uh, it's one of my greatest satisfactions. All right. So we'll delve in. The first one, you guys did a fantastic episode about the Olympics earlier this summer and Olympic history. And now that the 2020-2021 uh, Summer Olympics uh, have passed into history, one of the things I think a lot of people remember about this is the focus that ended up being on mental health in, in these Olympics that really started even before they began with some of the athletes that did and didn't participate in the Summer Olympics. And this focus on athlete mental health, and I think it, again, mirrors the focus on mental health that we're beginning to see as a society in general, really started actually with tennis player Naomi Osaka earlier this year. So take us through that. And also we're going to delve in a bit with both of you. You are both coaches. You're both athletes and both in individual and team sports and how that all sort of intersects here. So as you're watching, starting with Naomi Osaka and going through the Olympics with Simone Biles, as you've seen this focus on athlete mental health really come into much clearer view, what have your takeaways been from it? Well, Naomi Osaka is a 23-year-old superstar <laughs> in, in the tennis world. And in June, she withdrew from the French Open after the first round, after a first-round victory. 
And she ended up being fined $15,000 for skipping a news conference after that victory. It's the only news conference she's missed in seven years as a professional. And uh, the French Open and all four Grand Slams actually threatened Naomi Osaka with disqualification or suspension if she continued to avoid the media. Now, she wrote later. Uh, in an article kind of stealing a line from Michael Phelps, uh, uh, another Olympian who's been an advocate for mental health. Um, she uh, took a line, it's okay to not be okay, which is kind of a mantra Michael Phelps has uh, developed and uh, athletes have been using. And she's argued that athletes should be given a mental break from mental uh, media scrutiny and media obligations. She even came out to propose that athletes should have six sick days that they can accumulate like they do in other professions. And, uh, you know, it really raised uh, a lot of eyebrows, certainly in the world of professional sports, not just in tennis. And a big part of me can certainly... Uh, I certainly has empathy for where she's coming from. My least favorite part of the job whenever I was the offensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears was uh, having to do a, pre a weekly press conference during the week of preparation and a post-game uh, press conference after the game. Those were far and away my two least favorite parts of the job. It's really hard. Um. Many people have come out in support of Naomi Osaka for taking this stance. And again, she withdrew and she was fined. But yet other people have come out and said, when you're in that competition, that's part of the deal. Uh, and I would say this, if I was an, when I was an offensive coordinator in the NFL and for the Chicago Bears, my job would have been easier had I not had to do those press conferences or had I not had to interact with those press conferences or with the press. But as the officials at Chicago told me, that's part of the job. And there is a part of me, well, I have deep sympathy for Osaka, where she's coming from, there is a part of me that says if one athlete or if one competitor doesn't have to deal with those media press conferences, but all the others do, that would be, in my mind, an, an unfair advant competitive advantage. Um, she was fined. She... Uh, ended up withdrawing. Um, I don't know how I feel about the sick days and things like uh, uh, that with regards to avoiding it. Part of me does think that's part of the deal, but I'm extremely grateful that she's bringing mental health to the forefront. And I do think it's helping athletes. And I think some of the rules can be adjusted for sure. It's a complicated issue, probably more complicated than people think. So, yes, and a few a few things. Um, one is that Michael Phelps is not the first person to say it's okay not to be okay. 
Some have attributed that to Winnie the Pooh. Others have attributed it to, you know, early Indian, (laughs) you know, pre-Vedic people that didn't speak English, but basically said that in another language. Um, So Michael Phelps did not coin that term. And so it's fine. Naomi Osaka didn't steal it from anybody. I'll respond to the Winnie the Pooh emails (laughs) if we get any of those. If If he feels he was maligned by john's comment well, also just those. she didn't steal it it's a part of the lexic you know part of common parlance it's okay to not be okay um and it to me that the it's not lost on me of course that two of the women who are really you know kind of lightning rods right now around these issues are women of color and that they are really claiming like it's okay for me to have boundaries in white culture. And what I hear from you, John is like, well, it's a part of the job. So I felt like that then therefore I'm going to do it. And that is, is one of the ways that whiteness functions is it's just, there's just a givenness to it. Like, well, this is the requirement. You have to do it. You don't want to do it. We'll get somebody else to do it. And these two women of color, Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles are saying, you know what? We have a different framework for the way we make decisions. We make decisions based on our well-being, not based on what the culture demands of us because this culture beats us up every single day. have boundaries and you don't get to tell us what they are so the the interesting thing for me number one the courage and the bravery that it takes to do what they did in such high stakes situations it's not like they said this you know one day at practice or something this is the olympics this is the french open you know these are high stakes situations and um what I see them doing is really leading, really taking up space as, as, uh, as prophets, as prophetesses of to say, like, you know, at all these ways that we push human beings to the brink, it's bad for us. And we'll actually perform better in the long run if we can take care of ourselves. Um, so, The other thing I think is just also their gender, you know, um, women too, you know, kind of can carry the weight of this, this culture that was the norms of which were really generated a lot by um, patriarchy and, and white supremacy. And those things do, they, they beat up bodies that don't conform, um, to those norms. And, and I believe John, if when you were with the bears, if you had said, you know what, I'm not going to do a press conference today. They would said, okay, you're fired. You know, I believe that. Indeed. I, do, I do believe that. And, um, and I think both Naomi and Simone probably had to be ready for them to say, okay, you're fired. And that's, that's how much 
they needed to set this boundary, which to mm-hmm. me is, and, and I'm really grateful for Michael Phelps and what he's doing as well. I feel like um, this conversation is something that our whole culture needs to have. Just like you said, Matt, it's, it's something that the, the scale has tipped. I think COVID also has just really highlighted that a lot of people live on the razor's edge around their their mental and emotional well-being. And a lot of people are really suffering. And so thanks be to God for me when people bring up these their true vulnerability because we can all relate. We've all been in that place where we're about to lose it. But our job keeps telling us to do more. And how many of us have the courage to say, you know what? I'm taking a day off. Even if there are consequences, I'm more, my health is more important than this, jo- this job. And I also think, well, when you look at Simone Biles' case, I mean, she is the world's greatest gymnast. And she withdrew from the Olympic team final in several individual events in Tokyo. She was the face of expected to be the face of these Olympics in Tokyo this year, the favorite to win five gold medals. And she described rising anxiety created by the stress of these high expectations resulting in in something that gymnasts call the twisties. Uh, That is, as you're vaulting and spinning through the air, you kind of lose sight or you lose all sight of time and space, and it becomes unsafe. I absolutely hear what you're saying, Marcia, and admire her courage to stand up and say, this is, this is dangerous for me. I don't feel safe competing uh, uh, when I have, quote, the twisties. Not that I'm not a gymnast. I can't imagine how it must feel twisting and spinning through the air anyhow. But one of the things Simone Biles said that really struck me as well, and I'll I'll quote her is, I was obviously was expecting to feel a lot of backlash and embarrassment, but it's the complete opposite. It's the first time in my life that I felt human. Besides Simone Biles, I, um, I was Simone, and people kind of respected that. And I wonder, Marcia, if Naomi Osaka kind of came about a month before at the French Open. Her event started about a month before uh, uh, the Olympics. So uh, Osaka came first. And then also Shakari Richardson, uh, uh, an Olympic sprinter. Shakari Richardson, all of these women are under the age of 25 as well. Simone is 24, uh, Osaka is 23, and Shakari Richardson, a 21-year-old, won the 100-meter final at the U.S. Olympic trials in Eugene. And the 100 meters is like the biggest race that there is in the Olympic track and field. And she soon... uh, While she was in Oregon, she received a 30-day suspension, eliminating her from competition in the Tokyo Olympics because a reporter had confronted Shakari with the news that her biological mother's death of her biological mother's death. And to cope with the sorrow and anxiety, Richardson 
used marijuana and she was suspended um, by the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency because while marijuana is legal in the state of Oregon, it is a banned substance. And I think the courage and the strength that Shakari showed in coming out and speaking honestly and transparently about it, and that Osaka showed as well in speaking honestly and transparent about it. In your opinion, do you think that led then to when Simone Biles withdrew, the more uh, uh, affectionate response she might have felt uh, from people? Because Shikari and uh, Osaka perhaps did not feel that same response. Um, I mean, I believe all things are connected and, you know, I think there's a groundswell of, of conversation around this. I think it's kind of like the black lives matter movement. It's been around for a long time, but after George Floyd's murder, it tipped the scales. And I feel like, you know, we're hearing about these things. More people have more of a framework. They have more, they have more places to put when something happens. Cause we all, when something happens, we put it in categories. Our brain tries to make sense of it. And with mental health, people have more places to put that now. They have a bigger framework. They have a broader understanding and palette for, for locating when somebody makes a decision. Shikari Richardson's case to me is, is really interesting. There's so much there because, because what Shikari Richardson did after her suspension is she said, yeah, I did it. I'm human. I'm a human being. And I was feeling stress. I was feeling sadness. I was feeling grief. This is a very intense situation. I smoke marijuana and, and, and I did it. And what a difference again, what a difference in the way she took up space in that situation than the way many athletes have in the past, which is deny that they did it for like weeks and weeks, even though they did do it <laughs> and then not, you know, just be vulnerable just talk about yourself. Like, what are the conditions to le that led to this behavior? Because all athletes who use substances have a story. And, and also, I think a lot of the talk on Twitter and social media after Shikari Richardson just stood up and said, I'm human, is why do we still criminalize marijuana? You know, why do we still do that? There's a, there's another, there's another social cultural conversation there that this, we have a bigger place to put it, you know? Um, and I feel like there's such a loss for the world that we didn't get to see what Shikari Richardson could do at the Olympics, you know, like just cause of all these things. I mean, why can't we be more human? Why can't we be more agile and adaptive and nimble when these things happen? Why can't we be, why can't we just deal with hum each other more humanely? Um, and that's what all of this raises for me because of all these rules. Got to do the things, got to do this, got to have this, got to not do this. 
instead of dealing with each other on this very human level where we go through times when we need more support and why can't our institutions and our systems and our, you know, these different ways of, of being human together, why can't they have more built in kind of responsiveness and, and reality to them? Um, and for me, all of these women, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, Shikari Richardson, they are models of self-awareness, self-possession, really knowing themselves and being able to claim their space. I, I have no doubt that it hurt Shikari Richardson's heart to miss the Olympics. She's, she is amazing. But she, she knows who she is in a, in a, in a really important way. Um, and that's just more and more valuable than a gold medal. In, in a culture where we, <laughs> where we value a person being well with themselves, she won. a short break here on Going Deep from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio in Western North Carolina. We'll be back in just a moment. Thanks for joining us. And we're back on Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the news director, and talking with our hosts, John and Marsha Mount Shoup, about mental health and athletes. We've seen it from three very high-profile cases so far this year that we've been talking about earlier, Naomi, Naomi Osaka, Shikari Richardson, and um, Simone Biles. All three compete in individual sports, though there are team aspects, obviously, of each of those sports, particularly in the Olympics with track and gymnastics. There are team aspects of it, but they are individual sports. And I want to talk to both of you about this because you're both coaches, you both are athletes too, Marsha, you were in cross country, again, a sport that kind of crosses between team and individual. You had a lot of individual success. John, you played football, you coach football. That is a team sport. So let's talk about that. They were able to talk. They talked about it coming from an individual sport. How can someone in a team sport really talk about this? Because there is a different level of pressure, I guess, that comes from speaking about it in a team sport is in that you could be viewed as letting your teammates down. So let's talk about that. How can people in team sports, how we might we see that manifest itself in team sports where that could be the first question of or the first complaint or the first criticism of you let your team down? Yeah, well, we saw an example of this in team sports uh, with the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott. So in this offseason uh, throughout COVID, right in the middle of COVID, a couple of things Dak Prescott was going through. One, uh, he had a season-ending injury last year and so was rehabilitating uh, from a broken ankle. But two, and maybe in certainly more significant, uh, a brother of his who was very close to committed suicide um, during the offseason. And Dak Prescott came out and openly talked about depression that he was feeling and seeking uh, counseling. Now, on a football team, the quarterback is kind of like the CEO or, or the captain of the team, uh, the leader of the team. And um, 
some of the res- some of the responses uh, to Dak Prescott seeking counseling and getting help were were warm and caring, but many of the responses to Dak Prescott were, "Does this guy have what it takes?" to really uh, lead an NFL team. And some of those responses that were very critical of a quarterback openly discussing his need for counseling uh, to take care of his mental health came from high-profile ESPN analysts that, you know, really canvassed the entire country. And... uh, So there is that team element to it as well that these analysts kind of put out, is this guy really have what it takes, the mental toughness to lead the Dallas Cowboys? And it was really sad to really uh, listen to and read some of those uh, commentaries. Uh. I do want to just ask on that, just we hear that from the analysts, the pundits. And punditry is rampant in this country, unfortunately, and that's my own personal statement about that. But how much of that is true? How much is that in a, in, a, in a coaching sense, in a playing sense? You've both been there. How much of that is really true when a teammate, when a team sees a teammate struggling I, with this? Do they think the same thing? This analyst sitting in the studio, hundreds of miles away, do they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, two things, and I know John will have some really important insights about that from the football perspective, but I don't know if this is as much about team or as much about football, which is a very masculine, you know, football is a very unforgiving context. And so um, the things that it takes to be a football player are all the things we talked about a minute ago around patriarchy and white supremacy, like on steroids, you know, like you don't, it's very unforgiving. And so I wonder if they're using the team container, but it's more about like, it's more about football and what it takes to, to be a leader in football. Um, I could almost hear somebody saying the same thing about like a military general or something like if you ain't got what it takes on the battlefield if you can't be a cart cold-hearted killer get out of here you know and and that doesn't mean people don't care about them but you know you need people that have ice running through their veins when you're on the in the battlefield with with Simone Biles and Shikari Richardson, they did have a, an adverse impact on their team. You know, Shikari would have been the, the silver bullet on the four by one relay. She, she did let down her team, you know, and I mean, you could say Simone Biles did too. Um, the, the team scoring was, was harmed and diminished by the fact that they did not have her. Um, and they made those decisions anyway. Now, I think your question, Matt, is does the team feel the same way those pundits do? Now, I guarantee you, I don't know the other women on these teams. I guarantee you they have mixed feelings, though. Part of them totally understands where their teammates coming from because they've been there, too. They understand the pressure. They live it day and 
and day out themselves. Many of these teams are close, but there's probably another part of them that was also kind of mad, kind of upset, kind of disappointed because they're impacted. Um, and all of these people work hard and they've all taken one for the team before. Um, so I don't, I, I think the pundits are probably overemphasizing that stuff to the detriment of our society, <laughs> but I don't think it's, I don't think it's something that's foreign to a team as a coach. When somebody needs to step away or isn't able to perform at the level they had hoped, the person who's usually hurting the most is the person who is not able to perform that day. And so I always try to help the, the, the team switch gears. We're talking about our friend. We're talking about our sister, our, our, our neighbor, our teammate, a human being here. And they're hurting right now. What can we do as a team to be supportive? Because we strive for excellence, but we do that in a way that is also really centers what it means to have a supportive team. A place where we can actually, we can have the, the things that are always going to happen. We're always going to hit adversity. And how we support each other in that, how we trust each other in that, that's what makes a strong team. That's the special sauce. I do think in the world of football, in the hyper-masculine world of football, there may be a different feeling. If you remember, Marsha, when we were with the Carolina Panthers from 1995 to 1998, we had a meteoric rise. Uh, in 95, we drafted the first ever draft pick by the Carolina Panthers was quarterback Kerry Collins. And I was the quarterback's coach, a young coach, our first job in the NFL. By Kerry's second year, our team went to the NFC championship game and Kerry went to the Pro Bowl and we went with them and it was great. But by Kerry's fourth year in the league in 1998, boy, pressure was really, really mounting on him. And, and, and I love Kerry Collins and, and we were close and I had a lot of feelings invested in him. And he ended up drinking more and more and more and uh, is an alcoholic. And he came in one day, four games into the 1998 season and said, I, I can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm done. And the Carolina Panthers, he, he went to management and told him uh, after he came into our quarterback's room and told me and told Steve Berline his backup, he, he actually told Steve Berline, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Steve, you're going to have to start this week. And then he went up to the office and told uh, the head coach and the general manager. And uh, the Panthers ended up cutting him, uh, releasing him. And it was a difficult time because – I did have feelings invested in Carrie. I really, really like Carrie. But at the end of the season, our entire staff was fired as well. And part of the reason is because we didn't have the success that we hoped to have. 
And so you're right, Marsha, when you talk about those feelings in a team, there, there are mixed feelings. And it's interesting, the last coaching job that I ever had in the NFL was with the Oakland Raiders. And lo and behold, it, towards the end of Kerry's career, he was the quarterback of the Oakland Raiders then. And when we were thinking, do we want to take this job in Oakland? The head coach was Norv Turner, and he was trying to convince us to come. Do we want to go there? It was really Kerry who had called me and said one time, hey, you know, I just want us to work again, uh, work together again. I'm a different person now than I was then. And Kerry went on to have a great career in the NFL. Uh, he's been sober for, well, since 1998, since those that, that, that year, he's been sober. And uh, we kind of reconnected in a way that did feel good to me. But you're right, Marsha, at that point in 1998, well, I loved Kerry. I and many of our teammates as well did indeed have mixed feelings because uh, this guy's supposed to be our leader. And, well, he just came in one day and said, you know, I, I need to check out. Um, yeah. It was complicated. And yeah. I still care for him deeply. Yeah. And I do want to, sorry, before we just so we can wrap this topic up, um, go back to what something you did say, Marsha, earlier about the unforgiving context of football, and you likened it to the military and other things. There's a lot of unforgiving context in American society. I think a lot of people yeah. might identify with this right now of hearing, like, I'm having a problem. I'm going in to my job and saying, hey, I can't do this anymore, and probably would get the same response that Kerry Collins got would be fired, cut, and all that kind of thing. And he ended up going on to having a pretty successful NFL career once he was able to get his personal life in order. I think a lot of people might identify with that in America right now of having that struggle and having the unforgiving context. It's a little different, more difficult for someone who isn't a, a, a multi-million dollar yeah. athlete to have to make that same decision. So, I mean, how do we, yeah. how do we, um, how, how do we navigate this in the unforgiving context of our lives? Well, that's, I mean, that's part of why this is so interesting. That's part of why we're going deep on this is because our culture needs to change. Our culture is brutal to people who are in pain, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, economic pain. We're, we're brutal to people who are in pain. We blame them for it. We shun them. We, we tire of them. You know, we, we, we push them to the margins. That's what we do. And, and part of why we do that is because we don't want to look at that part of ourselves. We want to think we've got all our stuff together when really we're all just one horrible series of events for, from being there ourselves. And so our, our inability to just be honest about our shared vulnerability has made our workplaces just really, really um, dehumanizing. And I'm talking about everything from the church to the football field. I mean, we're, I'm talking about everything. The way we treat each other, the way we have built a society around overwork and and not taking care of yourself and not taking care of yourself being almost seen as a virtue. We've got to flip the script on that. Self-care is a revolution. It's an act of resistance to this 
to this system that is will chew us up and spit us out in a minute and not think twice and and the bus will go bump and keep on going down the road we're all expendable in this system that we're in right now if we want to have a different society we have to we have to start not seeing people as expendable and replaceable and and start really centering what it would mean for us to work together in a healthy way. I know we're trying to do that at Grace Covenant as we kind of adjust in this whatever world we're now in with COVID. Um, let's do some things differently. How do we actually have a work day and a work week where all of us aren't just about to croak at the end of it? We're going to take another short break here on Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, and we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to wrap our show today by talking about a topic that all three of us agreed is a major, major topic in sports, but just maybe in the 2021 blizzard of news and just ever-changing everything got very, very little attention. And we really want to give some focus to this. And that is race norming in the NFL. And this came out earlier this summer that this was part of some lawsuits, that it was something the NFL was using as a metric in the lawsuits, particularly around concussions with former players. So to begin this conversation, Marcia, just explain to us what race norming is. Thank you. This is actually a really good, um, it very much connects to what we were just talking about and just kind of our cultural norms. So race norming has a long history and it has many different manifestations, but it's basically um, adjusting the metrics that we apply to black bodies um, because of, um, of, of differences um, that we can track in the way black bodies um, react or perform or um, statistically out, um, you know, kind of we, outcomes that we see. So I'm, I'm, I want to give just a, uh, an example of this that's not sports related so people can understand um, what race norming is. So, so for instance, um, um, standardized testing like the SAT and ACT are statistically proven to disadvantage black students. That is statistically proven that they do not tend to perform as well. So in the past, a, um, an expression of race norming around that is to say, okay, so black students don't perform as well on these tests. We're going to compare them only to other black students to track, you know, how well they did on that test. Okay, now that is an effort to address systemic racism without, I am asserting, this is Marsha, without assert, without really looking at why are black students not performing as well on standardized tests. If you don't take an analysis of white supremacy into any of these situations around race norming, that's when you start to do harm. You start to do more harm to black people than, than the original harm. So now let's go over to, to what's happening, what was happening in the NFL around race norming. 
medically, I encourage our listeners, go out, just Google black mortality rates or black maternal outcomes or black infant mortality rates. Just Google any of that. Do your own research and you will see. It is proven over and over again that black people die earlier than white people, that black babies are two or three times more likely to die than white babies, that black mothers are four times as likely to die in childbirth as white mothers. There there are many, many, many statistics to back up that black bodies suffer in American culture in a way that white bodies do not. Now, it's very tempting in a racist society like the one we live in to say, well, that must mean there's something deficient around black about black bodies. But science has proven that there is no such thing as biological race. Race is a social construct. It's something that was created to secure advantage for white bodies, to secure wealth accumulation, really. So so the differences that we see in medical outcomes for black bodies aren't due to biology. They're due to the way black bodies carry the weight of white supremacy in this culture. Black bodies are more weathered. They're more impacted by racism. It's a daily, it's a daily beating up that black bodies get in this system from microaggressions to huge things like statistically black people aren't given pain medications in emergency rooms the same way white people are. Statistically speaking, we don't react the same way as a society when we see a black person just gunned down on the road. That's the way white supremacy works. So in the NFL, with the concussion settlement, where they're looking at hundreds and thousands of players that have chronic brain injuries due to their playing time in the NFL. The NFL was using race norming in the way they decided the different settlement amounts for different players. And black players were getting less than white players or sometimes even being denied coverage when they had obvious brain impairment because the race norming was using a metric that that started with the assertion that black mental capacity started at a lower level than white mental capacity. Okay, now we hear that and that's that's horrible. (laughs) That is so offensive. And it has a long history that is still happening in our medical establishment, not just in the NFL. It also fits very snugly into the way the NFL tends to treat black bodies about other things in terms of revenue sharing, in terms of power sharing, in terms of who gets penalized, in terms of who gets criminalized, in terms of who gets kicked off teams, in terms of who gets labeled a head case and an attitude problem and dangerous and all this stuff. So it fits really well in the NFL's ethos. The NFL is a white dominant organization that, that at every turn has protected white wealth. So 
that's what was happening in this concussion settlement. Now, they're saying they're not going to do that anymore, and that's a good thing. But again, I'm going to stop where I started. If you don't bring an analysis into the way you look at race norming that that centers that this is all about whiteness and anti-blackness, it's not about deficiency in in black people it's about whiteness and anti-blackness if you don't center that analysis then there is no race norming that that we could bring into the picture that is not going to create more harm so it's a very very important kind of iconography for us right now as a culture to look at because it's the same for every social problem that we have that adversely impacts and disadvantages black and brown bodies. If you don't center that analysis around whiteness, when you look at it, then you're not going to see what's really happening. You're going to blame the black bodies for something that is really about them bearing the brunt of this brutal culture we've just been talking about. I would one encourage our listeners to go back and listen to an episode we did a few years ago when we were talking about the NFL draft and the sort of racism that exists in player evaluations. And you talked very, very well about some of the things that you heard when you were a coach in that context about player evaluations. Were there other things that when you hear this, the NFL was doing this, are there other things you think back in your time in the NFL that this, um, some of the things I think Marsha was talking about, the other things you go back and you could go like, yes, that's exactly what that was now, maybe having some some time to, to look back at it. Race norming is a relatively new term to me. Certainly when I was coaching in the NFL, that's not a term that I was even aware of. But, you know, as Marsha was speaking, I thought of two specific instances in my coaching career where I can see it clearly now. And with regards to the quarterback position, Matt is one where you see it quite a bit. Obviously, to play quarterback in the NFL, you have to be a a pretty sharp mind and be able to think quickly uh, on your feet and process a lot of information. And I can remember early in my career, evaluating a quarterback out of Auburn University, a young man named Damian Craig. And I kind of liked Damian. And he was short, uh, but he was a very, very cerebral player who could just pick defenses apart. And uh, the scouts in our management kept telling me how athletic Damian was and that he made plays with his feet and that he was creative. And I kept arguing act. Actually, he's not athletic at all. He's he, he, he's a pocket passer and he's a very cerebral player. He's he was more like Drew Brees than he ever was uh, uh, Michael Vick. But he was categorized uh, uh, as this athletic type of quarterback because he was black. I think. That's starting to evolve, and we're seeing more quarterbacks. There's more quarterbacks now in the NFL, starting quarterbacks on the 32 teams in the NFL that are black than have ever been before in the league. Uh, But in the late 90s and early uh, 2000s, that was not the case. And I can remember having that argument thinking, 
Bill Polian, who is a Hall of Fame general manager. I, I, I remember thinking, I think you have this all wrong. <laughs> I, I really do. In the second instance where I just look back and see how clearly this is, is when I was a college coach at the University of, of North Carolina. And at the University of North Carolina, we had many, you know, students that the administration just operated under the assumption that they couldn't do work that they were certainly capable of doing. In one specific instance that Marsha and I've talked about on the show is with Devin Ramsey. Devin Ramsey was a wonderful, wonderful fullback tight end for us uh, from New Jersey and went to actually the Lawrence uh, Vol School, a posh private school in New Jersey and came to North Carolina and he wanted to take an upper level economics course. Well, Devin was fully qualified to take that course, but our academic counselors would not allow him to take it because they operated under the assumption that, well, we didn't have a tutor that was going to help him with that course. He's not going to be able to do that work in that course. I assure you, I had another quarterback on the team, Braden Hansen, who was in that course. Now, Braden Hansen was a white quarterback who went to Charlotte Latin High School. He was allowed to take whatever courses he wanted. Yet these academic advisors kept Devin from taking that course, telling him, you know, you're going to risk your eligibility. We don't have a tutor for it. This could really compromise, you know, our team's GPA. And Devin's like, I didn't ask for a tutor. I'm going to do fine in the class. I'm really interested in this class. And as I look back at that right now, I just see it in such a, I I see it. It's so clear to me now when it wasn't as clear to me then as to what was happening, but the administration was just operating under the assumption that, well, Devin's probably not capable of taking this class, whereas right now Devin's working on Wall Street, you know, so. (laughs) So those are biases that definitely figure into race norming those assumptions around, you know, the way black people, what their capacity is mentally or physically or whatever. Those are biases that that feed into the way race norming works. But the next step with race norming is that it creates a whole different kind of, um, like for instance, if you had, if (laughs) this is kind of what happened at North Carolina, it was, it was unofficial. It was, it was under the table or whatever, but, um, Let's create a whole nother track of classes for the black athletes because they can't take the classes everybody else does. So, you know, that's where some of the classes that weren't real came from. Right. So that they and and that, again, created more disadvantage. It only served to continue to prop up white. White biases and white normativity. No one, in fact, I was just contacted by someone from UNC yesterday asking me to come and speak at something 
I can't even remember what it was, <laughs> about how white supremacy still hasn't been used as a frame of analysis in what happened at, at UNC in the athletic scandal. Would I come and speak about that? And I said, of course. I mean, there's, it's just, it's like low-hanging fruit. I mean, the whole thing was about that. But there's still not a real deep analysis around whiteness and racial bias are part of it. Racism is a part of it. But creating this whole kind of subculture that keeps black people disadvantaged in a very systemic and just kind of, you know, um, what's the word, a tenacious kind of way, that's when we start to see these same kind of methodologies around race norming. Well, oh, they can't do it, so let's do this. Or um, we're going we're gonna to create this whole other way of, of um, evaluating Black capability or Black achievement, again, that just really in the end serves to prop up whiteness. There's no disruption to the whiteness in any of that. John, you had your hand up. Our listeners can't see that I, I did, but <laughs> <laughs> you, there was something you wanted to add to it. Well, no, I was just going to say that when Marcia said, you know, in a way, this is kind of what happened at North Carolina. I would argue, in a way, this is exactly w what happened at, at North Carolina. There, there was a curriculum created just as Marcia said, uh, under the assumption that these black athletes coming to the university are not going to be able to do the work of the rest of the student body. So we need to create this curriculum for them. Right. It's not kind of what happened. That's exactly what happened. Right. I guess I mean kind of in that that wasn't a situation of race norming in a technical sense because race norming is very data driven. You know, that was more just kind of culture driven, but it's it has the same impact. We have a few minutes just to finish out the show here and I just we'll end on this on this um, with this answer. The NFL says it's not going to do this anymore. In practice, how does that show up? Because we, we could say whatever at this point. Well, they can say whatever at this point. I mean, it's interesting if you, if you read much about the NFL's decision around race norming, they, they love technic, technicalities, you know, because they, you know, before they said they wouldn't do it anymore, they were like, well, we weren't doing it. The doctors did it. And then the doctors were like, well, we didn't want to do it. Their manual told us we had to do it. And then they're like, well, our manual didn't say, our manual came from scientists. You know, I mean, everybody was like meh, 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 trying to blame somebody else. So basically they're, they're saying something very technical. They're saying we're not going to use that algebra equation anymore. We're not going to put that in the equation. Does that mean black people will still be disadvantaged? Will not be disadvantaged in the way the concussion settlement plays out? Heck no, <laughs> because you still have a, a, a culture where there is pervasive anti-blackness and, and black disadvantage. So 
This is not the be-all and end-all of corrective. They've made a technical statement. They're not going to use that algebra equation anymore. They're not going to plug race into that. You know, officially, they're not going to plug race into the way they figure out those numbers. Okay, but that does not touch this huger, this, that's not a word, this huge container <laughs> of, of, of culture that is um, built for white advantage at the expense of black bodies that is the NFL. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.